Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey guys, just wanted to let you know in this episode, we discuss sexual assault. So just wanted to make sure you listen to this with care. Hey guys, it's Candice and Kayla, and we are Directionally Challenged. Yep, we thought we would have it all figured out by the time we're in our 30s. But surprise, we don't. No, we don't. And that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about sexual assault. We're also going to talk about a term um, known as stealthing. For those who don't know what it is, we did not know um, until shortly before recording this podcast. Um, There are a few statistics that that we want to read out um, just to kind of explain why we wanted to have this conversation with our guest today. So one in five women and one in 16 men are sexually assaulted while in college. 90% of campus sexual assaults are committed by perpetrators that the survivor knows. 84 of female survivors report being sexually assaulted during their first four semesters on campus. This has been called the red zone on college campuses. 
The majority of undetected college rapists are likely serial perpetrators, committing an average of six rapes each. Only 12% of college student survivors report the assault to police. Notably, only 7% of survivors of incapacitated sexual assault report to the police. 63.3% of men at one university who self-reported acts qualifying as rape or attempted rape admitted to committing repeat rapes. That's right. Today, we are going to sit down with Alexandra Brodsky to discuss this and more. Alexandra Brodsky is the staff attorney at Public Justice. She litigates cases concerning civil rights abuses in schools and the criminal rights system with Public Justice's Students' Civil Rights Project and Debtors' Prison Project. Alexandra Brodsky is a civil rights lawyer with deep ties to the student movement to end campus gender violence. She holds a JD from Yale Law School and clerked for the Honorable Marsha S. Burzon in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Brodsky has written about sexual assault for The New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and The Atlantic, among many other publications, not to mention a book titled Sexual Justice about supporting victims and ensuring due process is available wherever books are sold. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Alexandra Brodsky. Alexandra Brodsky, thank you so much for joining us today uh, for this very important conversation. And we're so happy. We have so many women that listen to this podcast. Um, And so I think it's, you know, you can never have this conversation enough about Mm -hmm. uh, what can happen in the world. And so obviously today we're going to talk about your book, Sexual Justice. We're going to talk about uh, sexual assault. This is very uh, heavy subject matter. Um, But I think what gets so frustrating to me in talking about, um, especially the the statistics of sexual assault on college campuses these days and for young women and young men is um, it's just whenever you read a story or hear a story, just how many common factors exist within those stories. And then also still the fear to report any sexual assault or attempted sexual assault or fear of sexual assault to any sort of law enforcement um, who would be able to do anything about it. Um, how are we still here? How can we still be reading these statistics? And how are how are we just not believing um, survivors and victims at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Uh I think we always have to remember that whenever we're hearing about a story in the news uh, about someone who has come forward to report a sexual assault, they are already in the tiny, tiny minority of cases where a survivor feels safe telling everyone at all, where a survivor feels safe taking some kind of formal action. And the vast majority of survivors end up telling, you know, you know, maybe one a friend or one family member, but never really moving forward um, with any kind of formal recourse. And I want to say up front that, you know, for some people, that's the right decision. For some people, based on the reality of our world today, uh, they are making a rational decision that going to law enforcement or reporting to their school or their employer isn't going to isn't going to serve them. And so, you know, I honor that. And also know that there are so many people who do want to see some kind of justice or need really tangible forms of support that, you know, law and schools and workplaces are set up to provide, but don't feel safe coming forward often because they fear retaliation. 
um, often because they fear that if they come forward, they're going to end up being the one being punished. And I think that there are a lot of hard questions about how we should address sexual assault, how we can do better by survivors. But the, the first, first step is making sure that people feel like they have the choice to speak out and to do so safely. And so that leads us obviously into our next question is how do we do that? I mean, it's such a broad question, but it's a discussion that we need to continue having. Yeah, you know, I think that it, you know, the answer really depends in some ways on your role. So I think that for most of us, the first way that we're ever going to relate to an allegation of sexual assault is either as a survivor ourselves or as someone who loves a survivor, someone who, you know, a survivor trusts to, to you know, to, to come to, to confide in. And in that case, our role to make sure that people know that they can come forward safely is to do right by survivors in our lives when they come to us. And also, when we're talking about sexual assault more broadly, when we're talking about gender in our day-to-day lives, knowing that there might be a survivor in the room who's trying to decide whether you're a safe person to come forward to. And so what you say mm-hmm. about, you know, a celebrity who's been accused, what you say about a politician um, who has been accused of sexual assault or says that they've been sexually assaulted uh, might inform whether that person thinks that you'll be there for them. You know, if you dismiss AOC out of hand when she says that she's a survivor, you might think that uh, you are going to dismiss them out of hand. I know I think that there are then sort of harder structural policy questions about how we prevent retaliation. I will say that I see so many cases these days. I work primarily with students in my day job, and I see so many student survivors who report and then are suspended themselves. Often it's because the school says, well, we don't believe you that you were raped, which means that you just admitted to us that you had sex on school grounds. And so now you're the one who has to leave school. And that should just, I mean, I think it is illegal, but if if courts don't think it's illegal already, (gasps) we need to fix that and we need to make clear that it's illegal. You said earlier that not, that everyone has a different path. I mean, obviously the root of what is experienced during any sort of assault, physical, sexually is, I mean, trauma, the biggest letter T trauma and everyone handles trauma very differently. And so for some that may be to go to a friend for others that might be to report to um, some sort of law enforcement and take those next steps. This is a two-parter question, um, but one is for anyone that may come across a friend or an acquaintance that does admit that they, you know, had been assaulted, you know, is there any advice that you have as uh, the person who is receiving that information and how they can support uh, a friend or a loved one who has survived a traumatic event? And I also want to, you know, explain just how difficult it is to come forward to any sort of law enforcement um, and what that process is like. And so Mm -hmm. just kind of exploring both of those avenues and and what they mean. Sure. So, you know, I think that the number one thing uh, that, you know, when someone, when your friend or your family member comes to you and discloses that they've been abused, the first thing to say is, you know, I love you. I believe you. I'm here to support you. And, you know, just making sure that they feel held and safe in that moment. And then I think that often just a really practically helpful thing can be to ask, you know, can I do some research to help figure out your options? You know, do you want me to come with you Mm. to uh, have a, a forensic exam done? Or do you want me to come with you 
um, to talk to a lawyer if that's something that's within their means to do, um, rather than telling a survivor, I know what's right for you. You know, here, I'm going to call up 911 right now and um, we're taking this to the police because I think for so many people, they experience sexual violence as a denial of their autonomy. They're a denial of their ability to make choices about their own lives. And so being someone who facilitates a survivor getting to make choices, you know, if you go out and do research and say, if you want to report to the police, here's how we would do it. If you want to, you know, make a report to your school, here's how you would do it. That can be really helpful um, and can affirm that they're a person who gets to make decisions about how they live their lives and what the, what happens to their body um, rather than, you know, imposing our own beliefs about how a survivor should act onto someone we love. In terms of going forward to the police, I will be honest that in some ways, you know, this is outside of my day-to-day work. I represent uh, primarily students who have experienced sexual violence in civil rights lawsuits. And the civil system is where one person themselves sues a person or an institution, usually for uh, for some kind of money damages. And that's in contrast to the criminal system where someone reports to the police and then police and prosecutors decide whether to bring a case uh, against, you know, against the, the defendant on the state's behalf. So in that case, the victim isn't even part of the lawsuit. Um, the victim is at best a witness. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons that I decided that I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer um, rather than help, uh, rather than work within the criminal legal system is that I have never, I'm just going to be blunt with you, I have never seen the criminal legal system work for a survivor in my life. I know it does for some people out there, but I have over the years worked with so many survivors who were my clients or my friends or my co-organizers. And I don't know a single person who ever saw their case brought to a conviction. And, you know, I should say a lot of people don't want to see the person who hurt them in prison. Um, Another reason I don't want to be a prosecutor is just because of the harm that, you know, can come from incarceration. But to me, it feels like almost the criminal law is almost irrelevant to most survivors' lives. And I I don't want to discourage people who might want to see their case prosecuted and might want to explore those options. But I think it's important for everyone to know that the system wasn't designed for survivors. And so if it doesn't work out for them, it's not because what happened to them is okay. It's not because they aren't, you know, they, they don't deserve to be believed and don't deserve to be supported. It's because it really isn't, as, you know, centered around survivors. But there, are, for for many people, there are other options out there, legal and otherwise, that can give them some sense of closure and support. What are those options? I think that this is easiest when we're talking about people who experience uh, sexual harms in the workplace or in schools or in uh, medical care or in sort of within institutions where, you know, there's an office somewhere whose job it is to handle complaints like these. So, and, you know, most people who have worked a, you know, an office job have seen an HR department, right? And HR is never your friend. I want to be clear. This is not me saying that the compliance officer is a justice warrior, but those people's jobs is to hear, is to, to receive complaints of sexual harms and then figure out what the survivor needs for them to stay in school, stay in the workplace, receive, continue to receive the kind of medical care that they need. Um, and so that's that's one option. Um, and that's something that I talk about a lot in my book, the importance of those those options that aren't even, you know, are outside the legal system. They're not even, you know, it's not happening in court. It's happening privately. Um, people can also often bring these the civil lawsuits that I was mentioning earlier, which is when rather than a victim going to the police and hoping that the state will go after the person who hurt them. 
the survivor, him or herself, brings a lawsuit directly against the person who hurt them or the institution that allowed it to happen. And at the end of that, incarceration isn't on the line, but often survivors will can receive some kind of um, monetary support. And I know that for a lot of people, that feels trivializing. It seems like we're putting a price on sexual violence. But you know, if you talk to survivors, what so many people will say is, I just needed help getting back on my feet. I needed to go to therapy. I needed to pay off medical debt. I needed to take some time off from work. I needed to move so I didn't see the person who raped me down the hall every day. And my money right. judgment allowed me to do that. And, you know, that, that that practical solution is helpful. Now, the problem with this is you usually have to get a lawyer um, and not everyone can find a lawyer who can work, will work with them for free. Um, but uh, there are, you know, I just sort of just want to emphasize that there are options out there when for survivors when the criminal law doesn't doesn't help them. You have such a vast experience representing young victims of sexual assault. We have a lot of young listeners on this podcast. So whether it's something that they have experienced or um, know someone who's experienced, I think it's just really key and important that we let them know what they can do to try to... um, help others in that situation, what they can do themselves to help themselves in that situation and what the first step is. Because I think a lot of people don't realize that when you share your experience, you're almost reliving the experience. And so people don't want to share it. Mm. So what are um, just some some advice for them? Because, you know, the reality is these these statistics are high and I want to make sure that our listeners are um, aware and ready if and when they ever find themselves in a situation like this. Yeah, that, that's a great question because you're right that young, uh, young people, particularly at young women, are at increased risk for sexual violence, but are often at a stage in their lives when um, they don't have a lot of feel every day like they have a lot of choices available to them. Um, you know, especially if you're a kid and you're going to school every day and adults are constantly watching you and there are so many rules about how you can behave and not, it can sometimes be hard to feel like you have a lot of a lot of choices. Um, you know, I think I would say that when if a survivor has a trusted adult in their life that they feel like they can talk to, um, I would really encourage them to do so. Um, a thing that I will flag, and this will sound, um, at the, uh, this is not meant to discourage anyone, but just to sort of as a, as a thing that they might want to research, is that particularly in um, for like high school students, if they're under 18, there are sometimes state laws that require that, let's say, a teacher, if they hear that a, a minor is being sexually abused, that they have to inform the police. And not all survivors w- want that. And so a, uh, a, a survivor might want to ask for, so are you a mandatory reporter? You know, can I disclose this to you in private? And sometimes a therapist or someone like that will have a little more options for confidentiality. Um, I would encourage people, even if they're not comfortable to uh, telling anyone yet, even just writing down in a diary what happened um, can be uh, helpful later if they want to pursue some kind of uh, investigation, or honestly, just to know for yourself that you didn't make it up, it, it happened, and you, mm-hmm. you knew it at the time. And these are the mm-hmm. details. Sometimes people's memories can degrade in ways that they forget little details that might be helpful later. Um, I will say, though, you know, speaking of young people, that I actually find the anti-violence work that 
uh, Gen Z is doing incredibly inspiring. I, I feel like I'm worried that this will sound trite, but I know that when I came into college, I had such a really basic understanding of consent. I don't even know if anyone had ever used that word for me. I thought that I, I, it was like, I guess no means no. That was kind of it. And uh, I remember once in college, we wrote an op-ed, some activists and I that used the term rape culture. And that it, people lost their minds. They're like, what is this word, this term that you made up? Do you think everyone's just talking about their favorite kind of rape over breakfast now? Like every 14-year-old knows about rape culture from TikTok. And that does a lot of work, you know, talking with each other about what sexual respect looks like. Just so much work to prevent violence before we even need to start talking about what to do in its aftermath. God, what I wouldn't give to really understand what just hear the word consent as a young teenager. It would have mm. reframed my entire view on just my perspective on sex in general, my own sexuality. Um, it just it, it really it was interesting to really have an understanding about what consent means um, in adulthood for the first time oh, yeah. <laughs> versus being a young adult or a teenager. 100%. And I mean, I think about how many of the messages that I got as a teenager about sex were contrary to them, not just incomplete, but really contrary to an understanding of sex where it was really don't let boys do things to you. You know, you're the gatekeeper. This is never something you could possibly want, but you're the gatekeeper and they're going to try to get over that gate. And it's your job. To just keep them out. And that left out the idea that younger, you know, young women might be interested in sex on their terms. And also that right. it's also on boys and men to make sure that they're listening, not just that they're, you know, they're just constantly kind of running into your barriers and you're trying to keep them out. And if they get through, that means you didn't do a good enough job. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. 
because that's where 310 Nutrition comes in. It's helping me and our listeners in the new year with protein and super rich food products with so many options and flavors. Right now I have the chocolate bliss and caramel sundae and they are both so (laughs) delicious. I have to hide them from my husband so that he doesn't steal them too. They're a triplex protein blend, plant-based proteins that include pea, brown rice, and pumpkin that leave me feeling full. 310 Nutrition also has a hydrate electrolyte drink mix. My favorite is the peach mango flavor. So not only am I hydrating and drinking water, I have an electrolyte blend, vitamin blend, and it's sugar-free. With one stick of hydrate mix into 16 ounces of water, and it can provide the same amount of hydration equal to drinking two to three bottles of water. Thank you. This way I can keep my resolution, keep feeling strong, have greater focus, feel refreshed, and maintain my hydration without having to drink as much. One of my favorite refreshing water enhancers they have is the lemonade flavor. It gives me energy. This one's also sugar-free. It's used with real lemons and it's pH balanced. And this also offers the same hydration as two to three bottles of water. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with code CHALLENGED and giving our listeners 50% off up to $100 for your first order. With so many sample packs, new products, it's really fun and easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products that you know you'll use and will help you keep your resolution. So go to 310nutrition.com and use the code CHALLENGED right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310-nutrition.com and use code CHALLENGED. It's all the good stuff your body needs in flavors you crave. So be healthier effortlessly. And we're back. It's you know you were talking about um what if if th- what survivors and victims can do and just even just writing down a journal entry or just writing it down um if you feel that something traumatic has occurred uh is like a first step and there's a few cases that kind of came to mind and that were really publicized in the last couple of years when we were going to sit down together today um one of them was Dr Christine Blassie Ford um. And the fact that what she was all she was trying to do was just this was meant to be a statement of uh, someone's character. And for anyone that doesn't know or has forgotten uh, who Dr. Ford is, uh, she alleged that Brett Kavanaugh attempted to rape her in the early 80s when they were teenagers at a house party. Um, And so he was facing other allegations of misconduct following Ford's uh, description of the alleged assault. and this all happened when they were in high school. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh denied the claims. This was all when he was um, set to be appointed as Supreme Court, who he is a Supreme Court justice now. But instead of it being a uh, just someone coming forward to testify about someone's character, it turned into a Republican Democrat, um, you know, fighting for a very coveted seat in our uh, judicial system. Um, but it all revolved around you know, what she couldn't remember or trying to p- every single little detail. And I think that that is what is so traumatizing for maybe anyone who's been, you know, the victim of a sexual assault before to try to say, well, what what if I don't remember every single detail? What if my mind has blocked out certain things? What if I just remembered something because a sense memory triggered, um, you know, what had happened? And and I think that that's so hard Um <laughs> That's the most difficult thing is for anyone watching that case play out, you know, to maybe consider, well, what if I'm not believed because I don't know every single detail of what happened? And she's being questioned over things that happened, you know, decades before she was, you know, sharing um, very clear details as much as she could remember. Um, How are people supposed to 
see something like that and then feel comfortable coming forward to report a traumatic event if they don't have every single detail you know, readily available at the top of their memory. Yeah, I think that that, you know, watching that was a really demoralizing experience for so many people. And to me, it really highlights what a a catch-22 this all is because a natural response to trauma is to block out certain details. And so Mm -hmm. the fact that you were sexually abused might be the reason that you can't remember every single detail about why, you know, everything that happened when you were sexually abused. Um, And I should say, you know, I think that people often discount how much evidence survivors do have. They, you know, uh, discount what uh, the the memories that survivors do hold on to. I mean, a huge sort of plot line of that whole hearing was people saying that maybe Dr. Ford had just gotten the wrong guy, that she was telling the truth, but she was misremembering who it was. Um, So even when she did have a clear memory, they discounted it. Um, but it's it's certainly true that not not remembering every single detail is a, a common experience. Um, and uh, and people are really always on the lookout for ways to discredit um, discredit some, some someone who comes forward. And for me, that's actually one of the reasons why um, I'm really invested in thinking about ways to support survivors that don't turn on them proving their case. And I know that might sound um, tricky, like, well, doesn't someone have to to prove their case? And sure, they might for someone to be fired or for someone to go to prison. Of course, you're going to have to be able to to demonstrate what happened to you. But there are so many other things that survivors need in the wake of violence, like counseling, um, like uh, you know, not having to share a shift anymore at their job with the person who hurt them. And none of that should need to turn on someone having enough evidence because it doesn't really come at any cost to the other person. Um, and so I think ter- sometimes I, I think about sort of turning uh, away from a focus on um, believing survivors to a focus on supporting survivors, that that is ultimately what this all comes down to. Yeah, the Brock Turner case uh, was also something that was at the forefront of my mind. And I read the entirety of the the victim's impact statement and just how, um, I mean, gut-wrenching and also powerful and... Uh, and really uh, just important what she needed to say. Um, in the Brock Turner case is another example of where this actually all just, it, it all happened really pretty much in order in like a timely fashion. You know, she this was a, a tragic circumstance of a young girl who was at a college party on Stanford campus who um, was found by two bicycle riders uh, unconscious being assaulted by um, a young boy who would be Brock Turner. We know this was Brock Turner because he was caught by the two boys on the bicycle um, as he fled the scene. Uh, The young girl who was known in the press and the news was known as unconscious woman or unconscious girl. That's how she was listed. He was Brock Turner was always listed as a champion swimmer, um, caught assaulting unconscious girl. Uh, But she woke up in the hospital. She was immediately, you know, went through all the forensics in order to be tested. Uh, she couldn't recollect all of the events, but there were cell phone records that matched her story. And she still had to fight in court for over well over a year saying I was not only told I was assaulted. I was told that because I couldn't remember, I technically 
could not prove it was unwanted. So even though she was assaulted, they had all the evidence, but they but because she was unconscious when it was happening, they were like, well, you can't prove that you didn't want it. And so even when it's right there, this isn't decades before it happened. It happened just, you know, then. And it, and she went through all the steps and she was still told you got to prove it, that you didn't want it and that you didn't like it. I, I mean, it, like, how are we still here as a society? And this was just well, also, one how do you singular prove case. That? It was also Stanford. Yeah, it's like. Yeah, it's really an impossible task. And this goes again to just like, this is not a system that is meant for survivors. I mean, I think about how, you know, for many years, uh, for for centuries, uh, it was actually seen as a big ding against your credibility if you as a woman came forward and said you were sexually assaulted. You needed your dad or your husband to come to the police and say, this was a violation against me, this man who owns this woman this man who is responsible for this woman. And it was a violation when, when, you know, when this person sexually assaulted my daughter or sexually assaulted my wife, they were, they were injuring my property really. And, um, you know, that is luckily not the way that it works today, but it's still true that the injury in a criminal case is against the state. You know, it's not, you know, the victim again, isn't even a party to that lawsuit. Um, and so often is treated as really, um, disposable is treated as someone almost who's getting in the way rather than the person who this process is supposed to serve. Um, And I mean, one of the things that has always really stuck with me from the Brock Turner case, um, which I talk about a little bit in my book and the philosopher Kate Mann has like a great discussion of in in her book, Down Girl, is um, the ways in which even though at the end of the day, Turner was convicted, you know, a jury said he did this that everyone knew that he wasn't really a rapist. You know, he was this nice white Mm. boy who went to Stanford with a promising future. And so the judge said, you know, oh, I know he did this, but he's not like a rapist rapist. Um, He's not the real kind. And, you know, that which means that, you know, even when people are believed, they aren't believed, you know, even when Mm -hmm. um, they are believed, it's assumed to be some kind of accident or fluke rather than you know, part of a, you know, terrible pattern of violence, particularly against women, you know, that is facilitated by the kind of entitlement, actually, that people like Turner, people who go to Stanford, people who have bright futures, people who are white, are uniquely positioned to feel, you know, he felt entitled to the world. And as part of that, he felt entitled to his victim's body. It's forgive us. It's it's a hard conversation to have sometimes. And sometimes I lack the words to express it. Um, What I really want to shed light on is stealthing. You know, California lawmakers approved a bill that would outlaw stealthing and allow victims to sue sexual partners who remove condoms without consent. I'm going to be really honest with you. Stealthing was not a term that I was familiar with until we decided to have this discussion with you on the podcast. Um, But before we get into how a single paper from a Yale law student changed legislation, can we start with the basics so that our listeners can catch up to um, me and us? What is stealthing? Stealthing or non-consensual condom removal is when um, two people agree to have sex. Um, I guess it could be more than two, but usually fact pattern, two people agree to have sex um, with a condom. And then in um, the course of that sex, one of the people um, removes the condom without the other person's consent. And so in that moment, the sex transitions from being something that's wanted and consensual to being something that's non-consensual. When was the first time you had heard about 
stealthing. The first time I'd actually heard about it was um, Lena Dunham did a piece in her book about condom removal. Um, She wrote a vulnerable piece about someone that she was sleeping with who removed the condom, I think, multiple times. And uh, and it was the first time that I'd ever heard anyone talk about something that, you know, I I just had never... (laughs) heard about this actually talked about publicly and also Mm -hmm. saying, hey, guys, that's not cool. Guys can't just remove condoms in the middle of sex. That changes the game. And that's a big no, no. Um, You know, going back to (laughs) having conversations about uh, consent. This was another big one that I wish was explained to me as a young adult. Uh, So when was the first time you heard about stealthing and was like, uh, hey, guys, we got to change this and make this illegal? Yeah, you know, I think I probably learned about it uh, shortly after graduating from college. I had gotten involved as a student with anti-rape organizing at my school and then connected with students at other schools who were doing similar work. And, you know, through that, I connected to so many survivors who had experienced all kinds of sexual violence. And one thing that um, I saw all the time, which really runs against a lot of the myths that we have against about about sexual violence, is that a lot of this violence was happening in the context of otherwise consensual sexual and romantic relationships. Um, It was, you know, boyfriends doing this, girlfriends doing this. Um, it was one night stands doing this. And, um, and I should say this sort of, you know, sexual violence more broadly, but for me, non-consensual condom removal was such a you know, terrible and also perfect example of this kind of violence that goes overlooked precisely because it's happening within otherwise consensual sex. And it's happening to someone who's sexually active. You know, it's not happening to our myth of the perfect rape victim who is this like virginal goddess who's, you know, a, a, a white woman who's never spoken to a man before and is sexually assaulted walking down the street. This is happening to someone who wants sex, who likes sex, who, but just doesn't want the sex to be like that um, and has their consent violated um, when their partner changes the conditions of sex. Um, and so I... Uh, that it had sort of stuck with me as a a, a troubling example that uh, sort of the sight of so many different myths and biases about sexual violence um, coming coming to bear in you know one particular form of abuse and so I wrote a paper about it in law school um, I, I took a class on sexuality in the law and I needed to write a term paper and I wrote that uh, I will be honest with you that I thought that you know. Maybe my mom would read it. Uh, my professor would read it. Um, and that was about it. And then on a, on a whim, I, um, I submitted it to publication at an academic journal. Again, thinking that meant that, you know, there would be a tiny academic audience, but um, it ended up making its rounds online uh, and eventually got the attention of a assemblywoman in California. You know, there's this interesting dynamic here that it, it's such a common thing, but a lot of people feel like it doesn't happen to other people. And so when you were writing this term paper and you thought that the, of course, your mom would read it and there would be a smaller audience here. Were you able to interview people in person about their experiences and how, what was that like? Did you know someone who had been through this? Why did you choose this specific topic? Yeah, I interviewed a couple of people, um, including, you know, some who I, you know, knew already, some who who I didn't. 
Um, and yeah, it was really interesting how many people thought that they were the only one who had experienced this. Um, I think because there's already, in any case, so many people experience a lot of shame disclosing that they've been sexually assaulted. And I think, right. again, in this context where someone has agreed to have sex with this person, I think that there are often additional feelings of shame, like it's their fault, that they should have known better, um, that it's embarrassing to admit to having sex at all, you know, when you're, especially when you're a young person. Um and so many people hadn't heard stories, hadn't told anyone else that it had happened to them. Um, one thing that was interesting in talking to um, to people for the paper is that some of them had experienced other forms of sexual violence as well. And some felt very strongly that there was a connection, that stealthing was another kind of rape. And some felt strongly that it was bad, but that it was different than their other experiences. That mm. it, uh, you know, the term that I, I ended up using was, you know, rape adjacent. And I didn't, it felt really, I didn't want to be in that situation. The person saying, you don't think you've been raped, but you have been raped. Uh, I, you know, I didn't want to, again, be taking away autonomy from someone to label their own experiences. So I ultimately in that paper didn't decide one way or another Um you know, whether it is rape or it's like rape or it's not rape, but just explore the different ways that the law uh, might be able to help survivors who had experienced this particular kind of harm. Shame is the root of so much of um, why sexual assault cases go unreported and and, you know, even acknowledging, you know, an act like stealthing and condom removal during consensual sex, making it non-consensual. Um, you know, this idea of I would assume like I should have known better, you know, like I, I should have known better, you know, even discussing some of the other cases that we were talking about. I should have known better not to drink so much. I should have known better. You know, I should have been so aware of us having sex that I could tell the difference when they were wearing a condom and when they weren't wearing a condom. Um, how do we as a society of of women and and men who have experienced this, just of, of humans, how do we as a society of humans um, begin to unpack some of that shame and let go of the should haves and would haves and just um, give ourselves some grace um, and in uh, acknowledging, you know, the the wrongdoing. Yeah. By someone else. I think it's so hard. I mean, I think you're right that this is the root of of so much of it in stealthing and in other cases. Um, and particularly in cases that are uh, the ones where we don't hear a lot of stories about, but which we know are the vast majority of cases, which is people who are assaulted by people that they know um, who mm. were assaulted while drinking or using drugs or, you know, doing something that they should or, you know, quote unquote, shouldn't have done. Um, and I think that for a lot of people, uh, blame is a way of asserting control or pretending to have control. So I hear this, you know, particularly when women will say, oh, you know, she was asking for it because she dressed that way or she was asking for it because she drank too much. And what women are saying in that situation is, I want to believe that this won't happen to me. I want to believe that it couldn't happen to be me because I'm the responsible one. I would never put myself in that situation. And the truth is that not drinking is not going to protect you. And not going out isn't going to protect you, especially in a world in which, again, most people are sexually assaulted by someone they know, someone that they could invite into their home by a partner, by a spouse, by a friend. Um, but it's a way of blame. So for them, them, blame is a way of 
of feeling safe. And that I think that gets uh, internalized by a lot of survivors. Um, and, you know, again, this is where I think for the vast majority of us, the way that we're going to make change around sexual violence is um, what we say to the people around us, what we say to survivors that confide in us, and just the way that we talk about these issues with our friends and our families, and being just, you know, even just a small change maker and making sure to, you know, not promote that kind of shame ourselves and to call it out when we hear it around us, that can have a real ripple effect into, you know, people's real lives. I think the hardest thing I, so I'm a stepmom of teenagers, teenage girls. And, um, and of course, like, I always want to just, you want to protect them from the world. <laughs> you want to protect them from everything. You don't want them to slip on a banana peel. You don't want them to, you know, back their car and at a parking lot into another car. And you want to tell them, you know, you want them to be safe at all times and you can't protect them from the world. The world is a freaking scary place and it's a big place. And I've always had a hard time trying to walk the line of how do you, you know, share with a young woman, like, you know, protect yourself with also not then putting this like the weight of of that scary world on their shoulders. And, you know, and, and also in a world where I don't always feel safe or I'm, you know, still walking to the car with the key in between my fingers as if I'm going to be able to stab an assailant, you know, you know, when in reality, I might just like cower into the fetal position and scream and cry. And so how how do we talk to young women about the realities of protecting themselves in this big, scary world and the realities of uh, sexual assault? Yeah, I think that that is such a tough question. And I think it's a really fine line to give people information that they can use without suggesting that it is their responsibility to stop themselves yeah. from being sexually mm -hmm. assaulted. Um, and I think that, uh, it is really hard to communicate that. I think it requires being a little <laughs> bit blunt. Like, I think it maybe requires saying at the start, the middle and the end, I want to be clear that I am saying that if anything ever happens to you, it is not your fault. It is not your responsibility. Um, but I want you to know um, that this is a thing that happens in the world. And for you to be able to do what the little bit that is within your control uh, to decrease the chances. And so, you know, maybe one concrete example is, we know that alcohol doesn't cause rape in the sense that it's not, you know, young women drinking that causes rape to appear out of nowhere. But we also know that perpetrators use alcohol as a weapon and they use alcohol to target people um, and to inca incapacitate them. And so informing a young person about that isn't saying it's your fault if you drink. But it's saying, hey, this is a, a tactic that abusers use that you might want to keep an eye out for. Um, and so that's still keeping responsibility ultimately with the person who causes the harm uh, while while providing some information. I also think that honestly, that um, positive sex education for young people does so much work to uh, to reduce violence um, that that doesn't have to come along with blame and shame and can actually do a lot to reduce blame and shame. But I think I, you know, I had, we were talking earlier about how little consent ed we had. I think that I didn't have a really good vision for what, uh, a, a, you know, a healthy relationship looked like, what good sex looked like. Mm -hmm. And you can communicate so much by holding that up as a model so that people can tell, uh, 
I deserve, you know, when there are warning signs, I deserve to be treated better than this. If someone is every single time we fool around is pushing my boundaries in ways that make me uncomfortable, I deserve to walk out that door. It's not my responsibility, but I deserve to walk out that door. And I just want to specify because this is so key and I want our listeners to to really be um, well equipped when in those situations. Walking out that door means calling it out right away, correct? And then ending the relationship and not going back to it in a time of weakness and really knowing their self-worth and their value and knowing that that relationship isn't everything. Because I think the hard part is in the, we're, we're talking about mainly high school and college and these really highly emotional times times in life um, that understandably the pressure's high. And so to have fun and escape and be with others and feel loved is all part of the experience. But to know the difference and know the line of what what makes them comfortable and what is uncomfortable and feeling the confidence and the self-worth to call it out and stopping it right then. And knowing that there are other relationships in life and there are more Um, valuable things in life and that this isn't everything. Yeah. And again, you know, I always have this moment. I think, Candice, this goes to your initial question about, you know, I don't want to suggest that it's someone's fault if they don't feel safe leaving. Um, And I know, you know, most people who leave abusive relationships leave multiple times. Um, And, you know, it, it it takes a couple times. I think they say seven on average. It takes like seven times. It's very hard to leave an abusive relationship. Yeah. So I know it's not as easy as like some random lady on a podcast saying that you should leave and then being like, okay, now I'm going to leave. But I also, but I also know, I mean, again, you know, I, you know, this is maybe a little clearer in sort of sexual assault cases, but, you know, I think that I really grew up on this idea that there's this script where, you know, sex happens between a man and a woman and the man just asks and asks and asks and pushes and pushes and pushes. And eventually the woman, you know, she tries to fight him off as long as possible and then maybe eventually relents. And so when people followed that sexual script, it just felt normal to me rather than something, rather than a red flag, rather than a flag that this person isn't concerned about what you want, you know, isn't concerned about keeping you safe and you feeling uncomfortable and enjoying it. Um, And so having, knowing how good sex can be, I think is often a great way to help people know that they can demand more and get out when they're not getting it. Mm -hmm. And I know we've kept you, but I really want to ask and make sure we um, talk about what does it feel like to be the driving force behind such a powerful piece of legislation? I know earlier you had brought up Christina Garcia, who um, is the assembly member who co-sponsored the bill and she herself has been a victim of stealthing. And, um, this bill was signed October 7th, 2021. This is this is brand new and this will likely pave the way for others in the future. So what does that feel like to be the driving force behind such a powerful piece of legislation? It's really wild. I have to be honest with you. I mean, I feel like I, <laughs> yes. I have to say that obviously, you know, like no one person gets a bill over the line. So, you know, this wouldn't have happened without Assemblymember Garcia, um, who has been working for years to get a bill passed. And I know that it really does take a village. Like, man, I did not see that coming. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that the mostly the lesson I've gotten from it is that, you know, like I'm a lawyer. I spend a lot of time um, working very hard on technical arguments in front of a desk all day. And I do think that that stuff is important. But also, 
there are few things as powerful as just naming the problem, um, especially when it's something like stealthing that is at th this weird uh, Venn diagram of really common and no one talks about. And, you know, I don't think that my paper was like the most brilliant paper that a law student has ever written. But, uh, you know, I don't think that that's why it had this impact. I think that it had an impact because um, it, it, you know, it, it put something on paper that people weren't talking about and it related to their lives and that gave other people a vocabulary to make change. Um, and that, I don't know, that, I think that that's ultimately an, op an optimistic story. Mm-hmm. I also, I'm really embarrassed to have to ask, um, know your, how do you say, how do you address the, the website? IX or? No, you're nine. Yeah, but it is IX. So that's good for no, a website. It's okay. good to flag that it's IX, not the, not the, the, the normal Perfect. nine. Yeah. So I, we also want to talk about um, you, Know Your Nine. Um, you can go to www.knowyourix.org. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this organization and what you're doing current, what you're doing currently and what your goals are upcoming? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Know Your Nine is a youth-led anti-violence group that I co-founded, uh, I guess, when I was 23. So almost almost a decade ago now. Um, uh, that was working to, is working to make sure that students know their rights under the federal civil rights law, Title IX, um, which requires schools to uh, pr uh, provide support so that survivors can continue to learn in the wake of violence. Um, and Know Your Nine also works to bring student voices to policymakers because there's often like a group of 55-year-olds together, no offense, trying to figure out what students need and not actually listening to student survivors to hear what will make a difference in their lives. Um, and so, uh, you know, Know Your Nine was another thing that sort of started, started small and has to my surprise, gotten big. We, my friend and I, thought that it was going to be basically a social media campaign over a summer. We were going to like make some graphics and put them on then Facebook uh, and have that circulate. Um, but it's now a organization that has survived my departure. I am no longer credibly a youth organizer, so I now, you know, advise <laughs> uh, the organization, but um, am not am not staffed there anymore. Um, but they're doing really incredible work, and a lot of that is. Um, coming to the fore right now because during the Trump administration, the Department of Education made some new Title IX rules that are really terrible for survivors. And the Biden administration has promised that they will change those, but it's really dragging its feet. And so Know Your Nine is doing a lot of work to make sure that those rules come out soon uh, and that they are really meaning, they are meaningful protections for survivors. Alexander Brodsky, we are so grateful that we sat down with you and we are so honored that you are doing so much for so many and that you will continue to do so. Where can people follow you and find you if they want to um, continue to help support or track what's happening? Uh, I am um, probably most accessible on Twitter. I'm um, at AZ Brodsky. Um, I, I'm not talking in my capacity as my my day job, but I work for an organization called Public Justice. I uh, litigate cases there, um, and I have this uh, new book out, Sexual Justice, where um, I'd be really grateful if people who are interested in this topic would uh, give it a read and let me know what they think. We'll have the link to purchase the book in our show notes and on our socials. Alexandra, you're a badass. Thank you so you much. Are. Thank you. <laughs> Thank Thanks you. so much Thank for having you. me. Direction challenge. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We want to thank Alexander Brodsky for sitting down with us and having this important discussion. Um, I know Candace and I felt really compelled to sit down with her and discuss this. And um, we're really grateful that she took the time in her busy schedule to do this. If you guys want to read up more um, on this subject matter of uh, sexual assault, sexual justice, you guys can check out Alexandra Brodsky's book available everywhere titled Sexual Justice, Supporting Victims, Ensuring Due Process and Resisting the Conservative Backlash. You can also visit the website we spoke about towards the end um, for more information, uh, www.knowyour9.org. Nine is I-X. So that is www.knowyourix.org. We hope you found this episode of Directionally Challenged informative. We have another great one coming for you next week. We'll see you then. Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions. Producer, Melissa DeMonts. Post-production sound by Chris Henry. Music by Joe King. And advertising partnership with ACAST.